Welcome to Photo Taco, the only show with photography tips you can learn in the time it takes to eat a taco. Or perhaps a burrito. Photo Taco! Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of Photo Taco on the Master Photography Podcast Network. I am your host, Jeff Harmon. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes of your day with me. And I'm joined in this episode by repeat guest, Don Kamarechka. Welcome back to the show, Don. How are you doing? Thank you, Jeff. I'm doing great. Uh, life is a, a wonderful kind of chaos right now. Uh, as I was just mentioning uh, before we started rolling that my my time flies. It's, I can't remember how long it's been since I we're on, but I mean, my daughter's three years old right now and uh, she's just... Uh, uh, you know, they say terrible twos are yeah, are yeah. terrifying, and they were, and now it's not stopping. So, <laughs> uh, so, but hey, you know what? It, it, life is uh, life is great, and yeah. uh, I'm happy to be back on the show. Uh, we'll talk at the very end that I've got a new book project going on, but. Right. Uh, uh, I think we're uh, in for a pretty fun discussion on macro photography. Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to have a lot of listeners who will be excited for the help from this episode because it's a it's a genre of photography I think a whole bunch would love to do and they have no idea how to get into it. And that's really what we're going to try to try to to start the discussion on today. There's so much more to it that there's no way we can cover it in this time. But but I want to start the discussion. You don't know what you don't know. Right. It's like, okay, well, what is macro photography? Where do we start? To be honest, the the bulk of my professional career, uh, it's images that I've made either on my kitchen table or a table in my studio or in my backyard. And yes, I've gone to far off places, uh, you know, the, the Yukon wilderness and things like that. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. But if you ignore what is literally in your own backyard, you're missing so many opportunities. And the macro world, uh, it really doesn't matter if it's your backyard or or half the world away. <laughs> exactly. You get awesome pictures of either one. So it's fun. All right. So so here's what I want to start out with on, on this episode. Um, I, I have a lot of the, a huge portion of the listeners are people who are, uh, are pretty competent photographers. They're doing a, they, they know how to get exposure. They know how to use their camera and they, they want to branch out into other things or figure out how do I take the, the competency I've built up and take it to the next level. Where do I go from here? So that's what I, I want to kind of start with that part of the discussion first. How does a, a, a photographer who's competent with their camera, how do they branch out into macro if they've never done it before? Where where do you start as you get into this? And let, let's start, I think we should start the discussion first with like the minimalist gear, <laughs> the minimalist cost. Yeah. So, because you, you certainly are going to need some stuff that you probably don't have yet, if that's where you are as a photographer. So, what what do you recommend, Don? How do how does someone kind of dip their toes in, maybe a little bit, instead of having to go full bore into the macro world? How do they just get a, a feel for it? What do they? What's like the minimum they need? So, when you hear macro photography, you might immediately associate that with a macro lens, right? And right. you're right. I mean that that can be one avenue uh, to approach the um, uh, the small world is to get a lens that is designed to get you that much closer. And by the way, you don't have to spend the stupid amount of money on like a, the Canon. It's the 100 millimeter L series macro lens that has a fancy image stabilizer. And Image stabilization and autofocus tend to be much less important in the macro photography realm. Uh, you'll often have a subject that is moving uh, very quickly. So, you know, stabilization in the lens doesn't really matter. You'd be using flash uh, or autofocus doesn't really perform all that well in most cases on a small scale. Um, now, some of these lenses will make great portrait lenses uh, too. So if you want something to hit both, there's options there. But go for either a cheap macro lens. You know, Tamron has their 90 millimeter macro. Um, you know, if you're in the micro four thirds world, uh, you know, Panasonic makes a 30 millimeter macro lens. And these will be a couple of hundred dollars. That might still be too much for certain people. Right, uh, right. And I get that because you don't know if this is going to be of any use to you. So why are you going to invest into it? What's your return on investment going to be? Any lens can be turned into a macro lens. And uh, I've done some quick tests with, uh, if you want the $5 option, it's either going to be a, um, a reversing ring or a close-up filter for the front of the lens. Um, Jeff, have you ever looked through a pair of binoculars backwards? Oh, of course. 
Yeah, yeah. They they work. They don't work the way they're intended to, but right, they right. you know the light still flows in the other direction. Um, so if you could imagine taking a uh, you know, a fifty millimeter lens is a good example. Most people will have one right. uh, or something that crosses that focal range. If you put that on your camera backwards, uh, you can hold it in place backwards, or you can buy a little piece of machined aluminum for a couple of dollars on on eBay or Amazon, and uh, it's. Kind of like that, uh, that that same scenario uh, where the optics are working, but they're not working the way the manufacturer's intended. And you're going to take something big and make it into something small. You get a macro lens at around 50 millimeters, the, the same magnification that a dedicated macro lens would get you. Uh, if you put a wider angle lens on, you'd get more magnification. You're taking something even bigger and making it into something smaller. So those are some uh, you know easy ways to get there. My favorite, however, that's universal and it doesn't take up a lot of space in your bag uh, and it gives you full control over your aperture is a set of extension tubes. Uh-huh. And uh, they basically fit between the camera body and the lens. And they function, if you've ever used an old view camera or seen antique cameras that have those bellows on them, you right. bellows for modern cameras too. But um, if you were to use one of those cameras uh, and want to photograph a landscape, the bellows would be very much contracted so that the lens was very, very close to the film plane. Now, of course, it's our sensor. Um, And if you wanted to do a portrait, you'd extend the bellows out a little bit. If you wanted to do macro photography, you'd push it out further. The further you would push the lens from where the image was being made, the closer the subject would be to the front of the, uh, the lens element. So that same logic applies. You can have the range of uh, whatever regular, you know, a 24 to 105 uh, everyday kind of lens. Uh-huh. And if you were to take that, you know, focus to infinity on one end and whatever the closest point is on another, uh, and you put extension tubes in there, that shifts that entire range forward. So infinity focus on the lens barrel uh, barrel might only be let's say, uh, two feet away. Right. Uh, But the closest point gets much, much closer. Uh, You've got full control over your camera with one of these. uh, And if you wanted to use autofocus, sure, it's there. Uh, But you have then all of your EXIF data and everything nicely preserved. And uh, you can use them with any lens. Around 100 millimeters is where they work the best. But hey, feel free to experiment. Is there a specific brand of these things that you'd recommend? Here's the key. There's no optics in extension tubes. It's just empty space with electrical contacts running through. So you, I would recommend not buying the Canon or Nikon uh, branded ones because uh, they either work or they don't. I prefer Kenko as a brand. They make them for a a number of different manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, different uh, camera brands. And uh, I've, I broke one, but it's because I dropped it down a flight of concrete stairs. And I'm pretty sure if I had the Canon equivalent one, it would have broken. That would also, so, yes. <laughs> uh, but they've been pretty rock solid. All right, Kenko. So, and we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to those extension tubes. So that I, I love that suggestion because it's a very inexpensive way to that someone could dip their toes in and kind of experiment. And that, I really encourage that for all photographers. It, even if if you're a portrait photographer or a wedding photographer or landscape photographer, if whatever genre you think you're in experimenting and getting outside of where you're comfortable, it allows you to learn so, so much. And I just love it. Maybe, maybe it's just cause I'm, I'm really a geek with this stuff. And I, <laughs> I love well, but here, Here's the thing, Jeff, and, and this can't be understated. Um, experimenting is the key to good photography because experimenting will let you be creative. It's because you're asking yourself, what if? And even if the answer to that question is not a spectacular image, you've gained knowledge in the process. You might've made a mistake, but it's not a failure. And so that kind of experimentation, the more of that we do, the more creative ideas we get, Um, whether you're a wedding photographer or a landscape photographer, it doesn't matter. Always just try to scratch your head and say, why don't I just try this? It'll probably fail, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll gain a little puzzle piece of knowledge from the process. Absolutely. I, I think the, the things I have learned or the way I've really increased the pace of my learning has been when I've got outside the lines and experimented with things. And then it's, it's made it so that I had improvements in the things I, I already thought I had down pretty well. Um, so it's just, it's really, really cool. And, and I think every photographer needs to allocate a portion of their time to experimentation and so they can get better. 
Exactly. And, uh, you know, as, as a macro photographer and I do other stuff too, but, uh, the stuff that I learn in the macro realm, uh, they help me in many other ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether I'm uh, the other day, I actually just, um, I photographed uh, a friend of mine's, uh, uh, wedding rings and we put them inside of an iris, uh, and did some creative lighting and stuff like that too. So, you know, the skills can translate in many different ways. Right. Okay, so we, we got, you can use the lens you have you ha- and these extension tubes. And you said 100 millimeters is kind of a, a good sweet spot, but any of them will do. Any, any lens that they like, they, they, you, you could use. Here's one pitfall that some people might encounter, and they'll be just scratching their heads to try and figure it out because nothing is ever in focus no matter where they put uh, the, uh, the, the focus ring. If you have a wide angle lens and you put too much extension tubes on that wide angle lens, it will shift the focus so far forward that the focus point is, uh, you know, uh, logically internal to the lens and nothing will ever be in focus. Case in point, if I put a, a small amount of uh, it's like a 12 millimeter extension tube on a fisheye lens uh-huh. and I set the focus to infinity, infinity focus is literally the front element of the lens. I can take a picture of my fingerprint on that. And I've done some fun stuff where I've like smushed flowers against the front element of a fisheye lens to try and get like a, a bug's eye view and that works. But if that focus ring is set to anything less than infinity, nothing will ever be in focus because the focus point is too far forward. So if you are experimenting, wide angle lenses tend to give you a little bit more grief than telephoto lenses. Okay. All right. So that that's a good, good suggestion. How about other, you could start with just that, right? You could start with just extension tubes, get out there and try to take some photos of, of something that's relatively small and, and play around with it. But if someone really wants to to do more with this, are there other things they might need, like say uh, a light, uh, a clamp, maybe to to hold objects in place? What what kind of other things should someone consider if they're getting into this? So uh, clamps. Uh, that's probably uh, you know accessory number one is something called a third hand tool, and uh, it's basically a uh, a set of two alligator clips on a, a weighted base that you can move around on a little swivel. And it'll allow you to hold flowers in specific places uh, or different objects in orientation. Say if you want to put a a different background behind something, very, very useful for tabletop or studio macro photography. And they cost you five bucks Uh uh, on uh, on Amazon. So I can't recommend that enough. I I buy them in bulk and I kind of treat them almost as if they're expendable. Uh, (laughs) I've. No, uh, uh, submerge them underwater in uh, in some bowls so that I could have something like a flower or a leaf emerging from the surface of the water, right. some nice reflections, and that thing rusts all out by the end of it. But uh, I get a great shot for uh, for that investment, and and I believe it's worthwhile. So um, that's great if you're in the field. Uh, you know, trying to carefully position a flower and what have you. Um, Wimberly makes the plamp, like plant clamp, P L A M P. And um, that is just a large, flexible arm um, that has uh, joints like a gorilla pod uh, would have that uh-huh. allows you to softly clamp and move things around without picking any flowers. Uh, so that could be useful, too. Um, in terms of uh, inexpensive gear, and we're talking about lighting, um, if you are outside, you need to start controlling that light. Anything you can do to control it would be great. If it's a bright, sunny day, take a black umbrella, like not a photographic umbrella, uh-huh. like the Just kind that you use for rain. rain. Umbrella. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, park that down, uh, you know, the, the stand uh, or the um, uh, the handle will typically act like a stand and create a little tiny pocket of shade for you to then start controlling the light because overcoming sunlight is quite the challenge. Uh, and you can, you know, get rid of it or at least mitigate it so that you can start using either an off-camera flash. Uh, I typically will use a ring flash off-camera for insects and flowers. It gives me a, a nice soft um, uh, diffused light, but, uh, on camera, it can be a little bit, uh, too sort of smacking right in the front and not giving any shadows or anything like that. Um, but I've, in the last couple of years, I've been really keen on ultra bright led flashlights. Uh, and when I do workshops on like water droplet, uh, photography and what have you, I outfit my students with these flashlights and it's more than bright enough. Um, you can easily get a thousand lumen flashlight, for 50 bucks. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's, I'm sure you could get them for cheaper, but that's a good one. Um, I've spent way too much money on flashlights over the last few <laughs> years just to figure out which ones work better in what scenarios. Um, and uh, it's a good investment. Uh, 
in the summertime, if I'm trying to backlight a subject in the wintertime, when I'm photographing freezing soap bubbles, uh, those ultra bright LED lights uh, tend to be uh, a what you see is what you get proposal. Yeah. And if you're learning, this is really helpful because if you if you walk into a, a portrait studio that has strobes, and you have no uh, understanding of how that light is going to fall across your subject, you're going to take a picture and then you're going to have to guess and check and modify and trial and error your way to get something useful. But if that same studio had continuous lights, then you would be much better equipped to learn from uh, from just every action, even without pressing the shutter on the camera, would have a uh, a realized effect, and then you can easily manipulate and figure things out. It's better for learning. Okay, so you you equip people at your workshops. Which, by the way, let's just plug your workshops right now because they're there. There's uh, been other. I've already sent a few listeners your way on the workshops, but <laughs> perfect. Um, how how would someone find out about your workshop? Let's take care of that plug first. Sure. Uh, doncom.ca uh, slash workshops. And you'll find uh, I do water droplet refraction workshops. I do private sessions, too, where uh, we really you know, we can get into anything from ultraviolet uh, photography to uh, very complex setups. But you'll find them all there. And uh, and I find that with uh, an ultra bright flashlight and a third hand tool, uh, sometimes people don't even come with macro lenses and we figure it out. We get, I, I loan out extension tubes and things so that they understand what you know pieces they need to fit together to get themselves a proper macro kit. But even if you've got the kit, you've got the, uh, uh, the ideas, the techniques and everything else, you still need to know what your subject is because you go out into your backyard, there is a literal universe at your feet. There is so much to shoot at. Uh, it's like a street photographer that's never done uh, a lot of street photography before. You know, they're just right. dipping their toe in the water and you're walking down in some uh, bustling downtown corridor. Uh, your work is probably going to be pretty mediocre the first couple of times out because you don't know what you're really looking for until you've spent a certain amount of time looking to try and find narratives and stories within the mix. Right, right. Excellent. Okay, so is there a specific brand of these LED flashlights that uh, that you'd recommend? Uh, Nightcore, uh, N-I-T-E-C-O-R-E. Okay, that's, um, that's the kind they, I've got uh, too. They're a pretty good brand and they've got a whole variety. They, I like their, um, they've got a series called the Tiny Monster and these are like massively overpowered. Like you don't need something that bright, but <laughs> I like them anyhow. Okay, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. I love it. I love it. So like you said, getting constant lighting really, really helps. And since this is macro world, that flashlight's like an enormous light source compared to something you know we'd be used to it's it's a, exactly. a really big one so that's cool all right so i like that i want to ask there's one other thing i know that you've mentioned in your petapixel article and we'll have a link to that uh in the show notes as well because don just recently wrote a, an article for petapixel about uh shooting water droplet reflections and uh and you mentioned a hypodermic needle so tell me how that <laughs> how that comes into play here so it was actually a tip uh, put on to me by a, uh, a student of mine that uh, was a dentist and he had more regular access to them than I would. Sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, they're easy to find. I mean, you can buy them on eBay uh, you know, without much trouble. Or I'm sure if you walked into any pharmacy and said you were a drug addict and you needed a clean needle, <laughs> they're not going to turn you away. I don't have the guts to do that. So I just buy them on eBay. But uh, if you want to play around with water droplets, it's very easy to carefully place them where you want them to be. I've tried uh, like glass eyedroppers and plastic little pipettes and things like that before, but the water wants to stick on that surface. It doesn't want to get away from it. Mm -hmm. But the hypodermic needle, the metal on that needle is hydrophobic. The water wants to jump away from it very, very quickly. So it is incredibly easy to get a droplet to hang on the end of that needle and then place it onto a surface like a flower petal or a vine tendril and get it to stay exactly where you want it to be. Okay, so that way you don't have to actually do anything with the water itself, adding some sort of chemical or or doing any preparation of the water. It's just normal water in the hyperdermic needle. Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me, do you add glycerin to the water for these types of images? And you'll find it mentioned in most of the tutorials you'd read online. If you were to add glycerin into the water, uh, it would change the viscosity of the water. It would Uh make a water droplet stick in place to a, uh, you know, in a position that it otherwise might roll off of. Uh Uh, And I think I tried using glycerin once uh, just to see what it did. 
but every other water droplet image I've ever made is just plain old tap water. Okay. So that is not a necessity. Don't overcomplicate things. Um, and if we're talking hypodermic needle in terms of uh, cheap equipment to get yourself up and running, a dollar store spray bottle. So if you get yourself a, um, uh, you know, dandelion seed for all that matters, any wildflower seed uh, will typically have little frilly, fluffy stuff on it. That's right. designed to be caught by the wind and, and carried that way. But if you were to spray that, with a uh, just a standard spray bottle in the mist setting, you would get some very nice uniform spherical droplets um, that would play in perfectly to a water droplet refraction image. Perfect. All right, so there's there's a few things to try. And I love the use of the water droplets. That makes that adds so much interest to a macro shot. Um, those have been my favorites to see that that you've got. Besides the snowflakes, those are those are really cool too. Yeah, well, and when you have the uh, the the additive of, of of water, you're basically, especially if it's functioning as a lens, you're adding depth and complexity, but in a very simple geometric way. You've got curves, you've got circles, uh, and uh, you know if you've got something like a Gerbera daisy in the background, large daisy-like flower, it's radially symmetrical uh, and circular anyhow, so it fits really nicely in with those droplets. Yeah, yeah, it's a very cool effect. Um, if you haven't uh, seen the the Petapixel article that that uh, Don posted out there was has a lot of great examples. So go sh- go check that out. Check the link to that that article. I have it in the show notes, and you can see some of the things. And hopefully that'll give you some ideas of stuff you could go try. I'm su- I'm really motivated. That's my project this summer. Is I'm going to go in my backyard and I'm going to I'm going to try to do some of those. This, this summer it's gonna be really fun i'm, I'm so excited for well it. with the water droplet stuff uh i i usually do them in studio so that there's no wind um and right. i can bring in some things to, to make that happen um it's kind of like a magic trick it's like if you if you don't know exactly how it's done then right. you might not be able to figure it out but as soon as somebody shows you uh you know you got that card trick down pat right so just to, to briefly explain what's happening uh the water droplet acts like a lens the more spherical it is, the better a lens it becomes. Uh, and if you were to put something in behind that, like a flower, then it will refract through the water droplet. So you focus on the droplet where the framing is such that that flower is perfectly centered in behind, but it's out of focus. Then it will come into sharp focus within that droplet. And here's a key uh, you know, piece of technique. You put the light predominantly, uh, not entirely, but predominantly on the background. If you do that, then the droplet uh, will contain the light of the background and thereby it's brighter than the surface that it's attached to or sitting on top of. And it'll just glow on that surface. And that's really where the magic is when the droplet becomes the lightest uh, element within the scene. I liked the the one that you put it like just a photo of the earth behind. Yeah, so you don't that, have to use a flower. You right. can uh, NASA's public domain archives are free for everybody to uh, to use in many ways. So peruse them. Find yourself a, a map of the Earth that you like. Print it out. Put that print in behind. But it doesn't have to be a map of the Earth. Sure. Maybe you've got a photo of a butterfly, and you want to have uh, like a monarch butterfly fluttering about the um, uh, the fluff of a milkweed seed. Right. And so there's an interesting juxtaposition or a firework. And now you've got like, a you know, 50 fireworks going on in the scene, even though the image in the background was only just one of them. So use your imagination. And uh, and again, ask that what if question and start exploring. Or maybe you have a podcast where you want to create a cool picture of your logo. <laughs> yes. Why not? Right. Uh, you know, wrapping your logo into an actual image as a, as a piece of photographic art sounds like a wonderful idea. Yes. I, think- I should do that for my own podcast, too. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, you should. Wait, that's funny. Why haven't you done that yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, now, now I've got to get my button gear and actually make that happen. <laughs> so speaking of your podcast, let's plug that one now too. So what, what is your sure. podcast on? Uh, Photo Geek Weekly. And uh, so on the weekly news cycle, I dig up the, uh, the weirdest, geekiest, and most technical photographic news stories. Uh, usually about four of them an episode. And I have a co-host on that uh, we just geek out over whatever we can and uh, and have a good time of it. I love it. It's it's a really good podcast. I, I listen every week and it's it's super fun. So everyone go check that out if you haven't yet. I think most everyone has because it's like the the listeners that listen to Photo Taco, there's a lot of interest overlap with, <laughs> with Photo Geek Weekly. So I think most of the listeners have already gone and found you and are listening. But uh, if you haven't yet and you're listening to Photo Taco, you have to go listen to Photo Geek Weekly. All right, let's move 
away from the gear for a second because uh, we just talked about some really simple ways to get into that. May, actually, maybe before we leave the gear, we talked about like entry level. What, if they want to dip their toes in, is there anything that you would you could recommend any single piece um, that would be more in the more expensive realm that if someone really got into this, they started in the dip the toe and like, oh, I love this. I want to do more that you would recommend they, they look into. So two, uh, two things come to mind immediately in terms of lenses. Um, I haven't used this one yet. It's just new on the market, but Venus Optics has their Laowa 100 millimeter macro lens. And what they're doing differently with that, it's a purely mechanical lens. So, you know, you don't have autofocus. Uh, you have to uh, move the uh, dials on the lens itself to, to make yourself, uh, you know, in a comfortable spot in terms of aperture and focus. But it'll get to a two to one magnification right out of the gate. And a regular macro lens can only achieve one-to-one. Okay. Uh, what that means is if uh, if you have your camera set to its closest focusing distance, a subject in reality appears that same size on your camera sensor. So if you were using a, uh, a full-frame camera, you would fill the frame with a quarter, for example, uh, because a, a quarter is, uh, you'd lose the top and the bottom of it, but you'd get it mostly in, in the shot. So uh, in that sense, if you want to get even closer and if you start getting into macro photography, you realize there's so much to explore. The closer <laughs> yeah, you want to get, get closer. Yeah. Uh, so a lens that in its native form without adding extension tubes onto it, because you can add those extension tubes to a macro lens as well and get even closer. Uh, but right out the gate, uh, the Lyoa 100 millimeter uh, macro lens, uh, and it's not very expensive, is a great place to uh, to, to grow into. And then if you still need to get closer and you just have a craving for it, uh, I still would have to recommend the Canon MPE 65 millimeter macro lens, which can get all the way up to a five times magnification. Um, you know, you can fill the frame with the, you know, the face of an ant at that point if you really want to. And so there's a lot of interesting things to explore. Uh, pro tip on that lens, it's the most difficult lens to use in the entire Canon lineup. Uh -huh. So uh, if you go and search for one on eBay that's used, chances are it's been used exactly once <laughs> and uh, the person gave up on it and decided right. to sell it on. Like, this thing so, doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, be prepared when you get closer and closer you encounter uh, some uh, unique challenges to the macro photography space. Uh, number one, your depth of field becomes almost non-existent. Depth of field is controlled by basically three factors, one being your aperture, everybody knows that, another one being your focal length, the longer your focal length, the shallower your depth, uh, but the closer you are to your subject also plays into that role as well. So um, if I was to get like right on top of a subject at some extreme magnification, my depth of field will be a fraction of a millimeter. And that's very difficult to deal with because how much can you have uh, in terms of useful information towards the uh, the story you're trying to tell within a fraction of a millimeter of focus, right? Right, right. Okay, very good. Maybe one other question for you as, as far as gear goes. Is there any difference between someone using, let's say, a crop sensor or a micro four third sensor compared to full frame that, you, that they need to be aware of? I actually like using micro four thirds for macro photography. I shot uh, about a, a year's worth of images with the uh, the Lumix GX9. Right. And uh, there was the Leica 45 millimeter lens I had on that. Wonderful lens. But um, the, the benefit there is that lens at one to one magnification has about the equivalent as two to one on a full frame sensor. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, APS-C would be in between at 1.5, 1.6. We normally associate uh, the crop factor enhancing uh, the effect of focal length so that right. you can have a distant object like a bird or some sort of wildlife appear closer. But that is also true of macro photography. So if you want to achieve that higher magnification, then using a smaller sensor can get you there. There's a caveat to that, however, because those smaller sensors, let's say if I've got a 20 megapixel micro four third sensor versus a 20 megapixel full frame sensor, uh, the actual physical pixels on the full frame sensor would be bigger. Right. And that could be important when you're getting into the extreme magnifications because diffraction is going to come into play. And, uh, you know, we 
don't normally worry about diffraction in, in most other areas of photography. But what happens is that um, when light passes through the aperture, uh, when any wave pay, uh, passes through an opening, water through, uh, through an opening as well, will create uh, a circular wave. Uh, so light will create a uh, sort of a ripple effect on the camera sensor. And at wider apertures, it doesn't make a big difference. But at smaller and smaller apertures, and at effective apertures in macro photography, you might be shooting at f96 and not even realize it right, uh, right. because there's some math that we won't go into that, no, would, right. that would get you there. But uh, if you're shooting with very, very small apertures, diffraction is going to start bending the light farther and farther off course. And if it bends beyond the edge of one pixel, it's going to start coloring outside the lines. So in that sense... Having a larger sensor uh, at higher magnifications would probably be a benefit to you. Uh, and there's other techniques that we could get into, uh, you know, that, that would help that out. But yes, so sensor size is a play. I'd prefer regular size macro photography on a smaller sensor. If you're getting pretty serious about it, uh, a bigger sensor would work, but it doesn't really matter. You've got a camera. You own a camera. That is the camera that you are going to use for macro photography. Right. Right. Just get out there and try it. Just give it exactly. a go, no matter which one it is. Okay. Very good. All right. Let's, let's talk about techniques now. Cause I, I think the gear is the easy part. Everyone can go take care of that. You can go buy whatever you need. You can get these extension tubes. That's the easy part. Now, how do they get out there and, and actually give this a try? And, and what I, I'm hoping you can help with is the techniques that are going to make it so that they have a reasonable chance at getting something like their first go their first try at trying to do this. How, how do you do that? What is there a, a subject that would be the easiest? Is there a, a technique as far as like how you hold the camera and settings that you should use? How do you recommend getting started then? All right. So now we get into the macro photography rule book, yes. uh, not just the catalog. And so uh, three or four uh, points that I think we should all remember. Number one is the background is uh, completely controllable. Unlike landscape photography, where the background is your subject and you would be then controlling what the foreground is, think the opposite. You can find a subject of interest, but if it's just out in your backyard or somewhere in nature, the background is probably some monotone shade of green that doesn't really give you any color contrast with the scene. But you can take even uh, blurry blotches of prints and stick them in the background uh, or, you know, go to the garden store and buy some hanging plants and you get some wonderful colors in the background as well. You have the full control over what that background is going to be and choose one that is uh, creating a proper balance with the foreground. So that's number one. Number two uh, is how you focus. So Regular photographers will either let autofocus do its thing or you'll manually focus by moving the, uh, the, the ring on the camera. Macro photographers are best suited to leave that focusing ring alone and leave autofocus off, but physically move the entire camera forward and backward in order to have the subject pass through the focal plane. And that might not sound terribly intuitive to begin with, um, but especially if you're trying to fill the frame with a very small subject, autofocus will typically fall to the background, not the foreground. It's just the way that it happens to be with most camera systems, especially if your foreground subject is just a hair too close then it would never be in focus. And so your autofocus system is not going to catch that. It can't. Right. Uh, manual focus by shifting the end of the lens can work in some cases. Don't get me wrong, but you'll also be shaking the camera in right. that process. Right. Uh, and the closer you are to your subject, the more shakiness you're going to be introducing. I'll hold the end of the lens with my left hand uh, such that I can physically move forward and backward very slowly, very carefully, you know, try to exhale when you do it, you know, put yourself in Zen mode um, <laughs> right. and you'll have greater successes. So focus is done by moving the entire camera. Uh, geez, what else was there? Uh, another thing that's important too is gravity is, uh, is, is, is not, uh, not so much a reality in this world. We don't have to make a, a horizon line perfectly flat. Uh, in fact, there's probably not going to be a horizon line in macro photography. Whereas right. if it's two degrees off on a landscape image, it will annoy you to no end. <laughs> yes. You 
Yeah, in a macro photo, if you rotate the camera 30 degrees to have the stem of a flower that's normally growing upright to be now on a 30 degree angle, you've just introduced a really nice solid diagonal line into your frame and sure. diagonal lines can can help quite a bit. And flowers, yeah, stems of flowers can be all over the place, especially if they're blowing in the wind. So you're not necessarily breaking reality. Uh, a lot of subjects, uh, you know, I've seen flies and spiders upside down on my ceiling. I, I could flip an image 90 degrees, 180 degrees in some in some cases, uh, depending on the composition, and right. it still works. So keep that in mind when you're out there. Uh, you don't have to be holding the camera in a perfect horizontal or vertical orientation. It's difficult to overcome that. Even myself, I have to remind myself every time I'm out shooting that this is something that I can deviate on. I can play to the strengths of the lines and the shapes that end up in the frame and not necessarily how they're positioned in reality. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So, hey, back back real quick to the focusing. You're moving camera in and out. What about the technique for tripping the shutter? What, how, how are you, as, uh, you know, how do you know when, how to trip the shutter? Are you doing that with your finger? Is that going to cause you to like, you've worked really hard to, to get it so that you've got the focus point the, the depth of field focused where you want it. Now, if you go press the shutter, could that bump it out and, and make it be a problem? How are you, how are you dealing with that? Great point. You don't just take one shot. Uh, I mean, an expert in macro photography might be taking 100 shots to get the one that they want. And that's, uh, it's not like a, a spray and pray technique. It's, it's, you're overcoming the challenges of that shallow depth of field. So when you're moving in and out, you're swaying ever so slightly and you might be able to predict when your uh, subject is going to come into focus. And so right before it comes into focus, hold your finger on the shutter button, pass through focus on high speed continuous. Uh -huh. uh, if you're using flash as high speed as your flash will keep up with you. Right. Uh, and if you're using, uh, you know, just a, a uh, continuous light source or the sun or whatever you have around you. Just make sure that your ISO is high enough so that uh, you don't have any motion blur introduced into this process. And you're going to take, you're going to take like 50 shots. Let, just I'm throwing a random number out there. Uh -huh. And three or four of them are going to be very close to the mark. One of them is probably going to be the shot that you want. If you took 10 shots, none of them is going to be the one that you want. <laughs> right. uh, so, you have to drastically overshoot and yeah, fill up your camera's buffer until the the, uh, the rate of speed continues to, to drop. And then once that happens, then just wait. Okay. When it resets, then go again. Uh, you always want to make sure that in that exact moment, you take as many photographs as you can, because sometimes that moment won't come again. Right. Uh, or you know, that, that hoverfly uh, resting on the flower decides to like jump up into the air and he's hovering above the flower. And then you try to take as many shots as you can, but you only took six. You could have taken 60, but you only took six <laughs> and none of them work. If you took 60, you would have had the shot you were after. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I, I'm I'm glad to have that. And and uh, settings, like aperture-wise at least, that in particular, want to go as wide as you can on aperture? Uh, well, you want to you wanna balance things. So I'll typically be shooting around f8 to f11 uh, for moderate-sized subjects. Your depth of field is going to fall off to be very, very shallow anyhow. If I'm using a or photographing a big flower and I still want the background to be soft, like a big iris or sunflower or something, I'll loosen that aperture up a little bit to uh, f4 or f2.8. But uh, typically, it's around the f8 marker. Okay. If my magnification is increasing, uh, for every magnification factor that you have, uh, including the first one, so if you're at one-to-one -one magnification, add one stop to your aperture. Uh, so if I'm shooting at f8, then I'm actually shooting at f11. Uh -huh. But this could be an issue if I'm shooting at f22, I'm actually shooting at f32. And if I've got extension tubes on doubling that again, then I might my effective aperture might be f45. And that's where diffraction would come into right. play and start blurring your images. You're not going to get more in focus in terms of your depth. You're going to sacrifice the image quality across the scene. So try to stay away from those extreme apertures. I, uh, In rare cases, I'll shoot f16 um, if I know that I can't combine multiple images together in a technique called focus stacking. Uh, but more often than not, it's around that f8 sweet spot. All right. So Interesting background with some maybe some uh, some good color schemes that, that go well together. We had the uh, shooting, use the camera, move the camera in and out, continuous um, continuous drive mode, and uh, let's see what was the other. Oh, uh, F eight. 
Yeah. And uh, a high ISO is not and going to ruin ISO. any of these images. So uh, if I had the choice between a grainy shot and a blurry shot, I'd always choose the grainy or the, the noisy uh, image as right. a result. Right. And you might always be trying to ride the line to say, okay, well, I need the best possible image quality and maybe I'll get lucky and, and the shot that I want won't have motion blur. Um, these images survive noise reduction so well because the background is very soft. There's usually not a whole lot of focus within them. And um, just keep that ISO kicked one notch higher than you would otherwise, and uh, and you'll have more keepers than you would. Of course, if you're using flash, which I do quite a bit of as well, keep that ISO very low and uh, and you'll have the best of both worlds, but you lose the um, what you see is what you get mentality. Sure. Okay. And our let's see, uh, for, for kind of determining focus and getting used to this do do you recommend like a live view using live view to to kind of get things framed up figure out where focus is going to be practice moving back and forth over the the viewfinder or how do you recommend that i'd only use live view uh if i was on a tripod which there is merit to that we haven't discussed tripods because i generally don't use a tripod Uh for my work i find that being able to rotate the camera around the subject as the center of rotation uh, ends up being far more creative and freeing because, well, especially if it's outside and you're trying to maybe get a an ant to be an actor in a scene, then uh, then you need to have that level of freedom. You can't be locked down. So, uh, sorry, what was your question again? I went off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the the tripod part of it was was good, but it was live view versus viewfinder. Right. So uh, when I when I am in uh, uh, in a handheld operating mode, uh, I use the uh, the viewfinder, uh, electronic or optical, whatever camera you've got, right. for the sole purpose of me smushing my face against the back of the camera as a stability anchor point, uh, which tends to be very helpful, and you'll get uh, you know more control over where the camera is moving when you're holding it that way. Okay. So that that's kind of what I wanted to get to as well was the technique. Are you? Are you doing something like your your left arm is kind of under the lens, the right holding the grip on the camera and then smushed up against your forehead? That kind of how how you're That's exactly how it is. And I'll typically uh a lot of this stuff is close to the ground. So I'll either rest my uh left elbow on my knee or uh on the ground or something like that. If you can get your elbows positioned in a way that they're not flapping out or you know uh on the sides of you, then that's an additional point of uh, of anchoring your body. And as right. many of those points as you can have, the better. Right. Okay. Very good. Okay. Anything else you can think of for technique? That, that the listeners should know about? Uh, well, I mean, for beginners, uh, I, I kind of want to make it like part of the technique is you you will fail and, and you <laughs> right. will be frustrated. That is part of the process. And sure. if you're frustrated and taking bad images, you're doing it right because that's how you have to learn. Uh, and don't let that discourage you because as I said, the keeper ratio, even for uh, a seasoned pro using that, uh, you know, continuous shoot uh, shooting uh, strategy you're going to get 100 shots on your memory card for every one shot that you really care about. And uh, you'll you'll build to that, but you might start by taking two or 300. Um, the next thing, I guess, in technique, sort of related to technique, is trying to figure out what the subject story is, uh, what the narrative is on something so small that it's uh, definitely not a human scale. So try to get underneath things. Try to find something that is a completely different perspective. Flowers from the top, uh, down, they're beautiful, but what about from the bottom up, you know, telling their story right. and doing so you might find a spider hanging out under the bottom of the flower. And all of a sudden you now have an actor in your scene. Um, so always try and see things from a perspective that is not your own. There's so many times where I come in, uh, from a macro shoot and my, sh- uh, my shirt is just completely filthy because I've been lying on the ground <laughs> right. and kind of squirming forward a little bit to try and, uh, you know, find an interesting subject or an interesting angle on it. Right. Okay, you mentioned actors, and you've got a lot of your examples that were in your Petapixel article have insects that are are in the photos. How do you get that insect in there? <laughs> Some insects are uh, cooperative; uh, you know, they, they won't move because that's a survival me- uh, mechanism, uh, or they won't move because that's a uh, preying mechanism, like a praying mantis. Uh, they uh, different praying, nice pun on words <laughs> there, but. Uh, in the sense of a, of a mantis of any kind, they're designed to just kind of sit still 
And uh, you can actually pick them up and move them and put them where you want. That's why some people keep them as pets. Uh, ants, on the other hand, not so cooperative. No, right. And so uh, I've used ants in a number of images. And um, uh, that's, it's hard, especially with water droplets, because they seem largely oblivious to the droplets. They'll like bump into them and drag them and they'll goop up into larger non-spherical droplets and like hang off that ant's butt. And now, yeah, okay, it's got a nice <laughs> refraction, but it's hanging off an ant's butt. It's not exactly what I wanted it to be. So you have to reset the entire experiment. And, uh, you know, these are often done outside where I can just, at this time of the year, our peonies are about to bloom. And so they're covered in ants. Uh, and, uh, so I'll just poke a little stick on them and take one and put them in the, in the setup and see if it works. And if that one doesn't, well, I, I can go get more. Sure. Um, in one of my most recent ones, however, I found a, uh, a really fun, uh, kind of, I wouldn't say it's a shortcut because there are still frustrations here, but if I combine the, um, uh, the bowl of water concept, uh, where I can get a reflection on the bottom of the image, then I can have a flower petal or a, uh, you know, a twig or whatever it is in the foreground that I can get an ant on and it's surrounded by water. That ant can't escape. He's surrounded by water and also he's going to go and explore everything. And I'm going to follow him around with my camera until he does something interesting is in an interesting pose position, sometimes even looking at the water itself, um, out of, I don't know, uh, ant curiosity, uh, and so there's an interesting story that could come from there. And yes, I take the ants and I put them back outside. When I'm done with them. <laughs> right. so. What about a bee? So bees are also a challenge. Uh, you can chase them around all you want. And, and I've done some, uh, photos with bees in flight and, uh, that's like winning the lottery unless you're using, uh, you know, uh, laser triggers to, to fire the camera. And it's a, a very positioned scenario. People do this with hummingbirds. I'm sure somebody's done it with bees. Um, but here's a fun tip. If you want to get a bee that's uh, maybe not flying, but still in an interesting position, remember that spray bottle we talked about at the beginning? Yeah. If you spray a bee and its wings are wet, it won't fly away until its wings are dry. And it might sit there for a few minutes waiting for them to dry naturally, or it might kind of flick its legs up and kind of try to shake itself off. But you have a window of time. And so uh, I've done some images where I've staged the foreground and the background, and I need a bee to be in the right position. And then I'll just go walk around the yard until I find a bee that looks interesting, spray him with water, uh, and then poke a stick at him, and he'll grab onto that like a life raft. And then I can take that bee that's now waterlogged and put him on the flower, and I get about a minute before that bee is ready to fly again. And uh, and so I can I can wrangle a bee, um, just don't annoy them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe not wear like honey. Yeah, not a good idea. Yeah, not a good idea. All right. Excellent. So I, I think you've provided a ton of tips that are going to be helpful. I'm, I'm really excited to go out and, and give it a try. I've never done any macro yet. So I'm going to I'm gonna be doing that this summer. I, it was my plan to get into that. And then when I saw you had the book, I thought I got to have Don on so that me selfishly, I can go. I, I know what I need to do to go out there and, and have a chance at it. So I'm excited to go give it a try. Looking forward to seeing what you can create. Uh, send it by me and we can uh, maybe have a little critique session. Excellent. That sounds great. Okay. So I don't now, now I want to make sure that listeners are aware if they want to dive more into this, you've got a book that's going to help. So tell, do. tell me about the book. So this is currently funding on Kickstarter. And so if you go to uh, my website, which is doncom.ca, you'll see a big banner for that, but I'm sure it'll be in the show notes as well. Yes. Um, if you wanted a uh, a nice hardcover 350 page book on macro photography that covers everything from the beginning basics to master classes in the obscure in terms of really unusual techniques stuff that's barely ever explored uh, but is almost like something out of science fiction if you want to to just you know live that magic of macro photography and uh, and see all of my work and every single secret and technique involved in creating those images um then this book is for you it's called macro photography the universe at our feet and uh, it will be funding on kickstarter until january or sorry uh july 14th uh and if you're listening to this in some distant year that is 2019 so if it's in a later year you missed it but uh it'll be shipping for christmas of this year so i'm very excited for that very cool so yeah, and there's there's still a number of options that people can go if they want to back the kickstarter they can go uh both print and an electronic option 
right? Yeah. And I actually, I, I figured it would be fun to try and do uh, quite expensively. It's not a, a cheap thing to do a, a leather bound edition that will have uh, like an extra couple of uh, pages in there that will, I'm not even sure what I'm going to put in there. Probably a list of all of my failures uh, <laughs> and how I, uh, you know, have ideas to improve them. Just some fun musings. But uh, yeah, all those editions are available uh, and we have reached our funding goal. So uh, it, it will be produced. I'm uh, I'm actually putting pen to paper, uh, so to speak, to, uh, to start the, um, uh, I guess it would be the page layout process because most of the images and text have already been written. And it's not the first book you've done, so you've, you've got some experience behind you. Oh, yeah. So I did uh, Sky Crystals back in 2013, which was a snowflake-oriented book. And uh, that was a 300-page hardcover book as well. And and that was almost a complete disaster. Uh, <laughs> I had to reprint the entire production run of the books. That's a story for another day. I yes. learned a ton from that. Uh, so this one, I'm not going to say it's going to be a cakewalk, but uh, it's much more guaranteed to be a success. Yes. I, I'm so excited for it. I, I've backed it already. I'm, I can't wait to get my copy of it. It's, it's going to be fun. Um, Don, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and talking about this. I hope that uh, photographers are going to do the fact if you do macro, and, or even better, if you've never done it before, and like me, you're going to go do a project, and, and I sure hope you will, I'd love to have you share that on the Facebook group, the Photo Taco Facebook group, or you can tag Photo Taco Podcast in Instagram and share it there. And I'd love to see some of that. I'll make sure Don, Don sees them too if, if, uh, if you send them our way. So you can tag us. And uh, that would be so fun to be able to see that and, and maybe put a little bit of the story in there about if you've ever done it before, if you've never had um, how you came to create the image. Uh, I, I love seeing it when listeners really get something out of the show. And I think there's a lot that are going to benefit from this. So thank you, Don. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Okay, Don, we already mentioned a lot of the, the places people can find <laughs> you, but where can people find your work? What's the main place? doncom.ca d-o-n-k-o-m.ca all of the links to social media and there's a good portfolio there you'll find everything at doncom.ca excellent and that because commerce is like impossible to spell so exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> so doncom.ca make sure you go check that out and uh, he's got lots of resources out there that, that you can go do in the workshops you mentioned if you're interested in really getting some some help with uh with macro go check out the workshops that don offers. And the book, check out that book. We will have a link in the show notes, or you can just, I'm sure you can just Google for macro photography, the universe at our feet and, and it'll come right up. All right. Uh, want to remind everyone that show notes are over at phototacopodcast.com. And uh, you can contact the show with Instagram is at phototacopodcast. Twitter is at phototaco. And email, if you have an idea for the show, or you want to give me some feedback, you can go old school email. It's funny that I say old school now, but old school email of podcast at gmail.com. No question too basic or too complicated. If, if I don't know the topic, like I clearly don't know macro very well, I will have someone like Don come on, an expert in the uh, in the subject, and we'll, we'll talk through it and get lots of meaningful tips that will help people to do that. Um, I had Steve Brazel on recently, Don, and we talked about concert photography. It was, it was fun. Steve's a lot of fun. Yeah, Steve's great. All right. I uh, also want to remind everyone about the Master Photography Podcast. That's the other podcast I work a lot on, and that's uh, a weekly show. And uh, we talk a lot about various photography tips. And so you can go check that out over at masterphotographypodcast.com. And I, I don't want to thank you again, Don, for, for joining me. And I'm sure I will have you come on again in another time for a different topic. My pleasure. Be great. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Views expressed on this program by independent host guests and callers do not necessarily reflect their views of improved photography LLC or its advertisers. Some links mentioned on this program are affiliate links where a commission is earned. Olay!